Hello. Hello, is this Jay Walk? Yes. Well, this is Paul, and well, I heard you were making a podcast about my music, and uh, didn't want to pay any money for it. Well, it's a self-hosted show, and I don't think you honestly care that much. I have like twenty-four listeners at week at best. Twenty-four? Well, maybe you could give us uh, twenty-four uh, hundred. Uh, no, a thousand for this show. It seems only fair, mate. I have about six hundred dollars in my bank account currently. Well, too bad. We sent some people over to have a <clears throat> talk with you, man. What? You'll never take me alive! Holy shit, what's going on? Did you shoot them? Well, yeah, they were on my property. Holy shit, man, those were just interns. We just wanted to negotiate with you. Oh, my bad. I thought you sent over, like, hitmen or something. I'm from, I'm from Texas, so I'm kind of always armed. Jesus Christ, that's murder, man. Nah, not really. It's kind of a, a castle doctrine matter. It's still wrong, mate. What is wrong about it? It's just that you use such extreme force against something that's no threat to you. And... And... Wait a minute. I get it now. This whole thing we're doing, punishing people for loving our records and making their own projects, just as wrong. We make more money than we could ever dream of before we turned 30. How much more do we need? John died in 1980. I don't know if he would be so keen on us being such bastards with our works. If a man wrote a work of art and is dead, where's the injured party when someone uses their material? Maybe this whole copyright system is being used more and more by the people who are least worried about it at the expense of the artists who have nothing. Hell, even our music is a derivative of those before us. I can remember when we stole licks from Buddy Holly all the time. <coughs> Guys, one of them is still alive. Should I should I call 911? Oh god, no, we don't want them to sue us.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome to Lower Your Expectation. Today's episode is number nine. So, you know, like I've said before, most podcasts kind of sizzle out about on the episode eight mark. That's statistically where most shows just stop and they just give up. You know, like many people with with ideas, you're like, oh, yeah, I can like make this podcast and do it every day and it'll be awesome. And then you just start to get over it. Uh, that has not happened with me. And I am actually really going to go for the long term on this. I was talking to someone recently about a podcast network, and uh, I said that I think that's like the biggest thing with people who want to get into this and start podcasting. My biggest advice is you have to do it. You have to set the time aside, no matter what bullshit's going on in your life, who you can and can't count on. That's a big one, too, because you are alone in this world. <laughs> I hate to break it to you, but whatever you want to do, unless you got money, you are on your own and you kind of have to accept that. And I've had to accept that with a lot of people, perfectly fine people, but just people who, you know, I think maybe thought it was just like joking about doing this. And then once the rubber meets the road, well, shit, I got like a real life besides your stupid ass podcast. So, you know, whatever. And I don't blame you, but I, you know, that's to me been the biggest takeaway from this show is, uh, you know, I wanted to start it with just like interviews every day and always have on people and the more and more I've come to the terms that it's just like not worth it. It's just, it's not worth it. If I, if there's someone listening and I can find someone who wants to come on the show, I'll, I'll put them on. Uh, but I'm not depending on that for content. And as a matter of fact, I think about the podcasts that I like to listen to the guest episodes are sometimes kind of like a bummer, you know, like I love Adam Carolla and I was actually listening to one of his recent podcasts. He had Eric Roberts on and I turned the thing off because Adam Carolla is hilarious. He's one of the funniest people ever on the radio. I think that I think he actually has like a a gift for that that is like hard to find and kind of hard to find us like j just to just to find that skill because he's super funny and honest, but is actually really really funny. I've been I've been listening to his uh, audio book uh, called uh, Not Taco Bell Material, and I walk around my neighborhood with my headphones on, laughing like a, like an idiot whenever I'm like listening to it, just, just stupid jokes he makes. He has like, there's, there's like a point where he's reading, uh, about how he had to bring some big jugs up to a job site. And he goes, hold on a second. Just thinking about big jugs, <laughs> just stupid, immature things like that, that I find to be fucking hilarious. So, uh, like I said, I, I don't want to make this show about me so much. Uh, just if you want to know what's going on, things are getting a little bit better. There's hope in the air, but uh, this this damn made up hoax uh, left wing conspiracy Obama virus is uh, getting worse in California. And Governor Newsom has shut it all down again. I'm glad I got my hair cut in um, because it's all back to shut down now. And uh, I'm currently dealing with the uh, county benefit system or the benefit system in California, which I feel very uneasy using. I don't like it. I don't like asking for the handouts, but I got to do it. So I'm, you know, dealing with that. And, uh, you know, so far it's been it's been all right. Um, got my EBT card. 
which rules. Uh, I had no idea like the limit on it was so low. Like uh, I always thought if to get like food stamps, you needed like to literally have like no money for food. But if you make like less than two grand, they just give it to you. So I picked it up and I had some like back benefits. And I'll tell you, whenever you're like in a depressive rut, probably besides booze, the one thing that will really make you feel better is a good meal. <laughs> I swear to God, whenever I start recording now, my cat just goes nuts. Like she thinks something's up and will come in and out and play that whole game. Like, oh, I want to come in, but I also want to go outside immediately. So whatever, just had to let her out. But yeah, like I said, uh, news with my life is uh, still poor. Getting some job offers already, some pretty, pretty sweet job offers actually. Uh, but I'm not keeping my hopes up until I get paid, you know, <laughs> just I'm assuming that they're all liars, but you know, we're going to, we're going to make it through this guys. It's uh we have to eventually, right? I mean, like may maybe, you know, half of us will die or something, <laughs> but we're going to survive, right? Like it's going to end eventually at some point, maybe, uh, you know, it sucks. What a shitty year, but everyone's going through it. And my biggest uh, tip for the world in general with these kind of things is spread the suffering out. I think that's the only fair way to do it. If you happen to have a little bit of extra scratch, give it to your broke-ass friends. If you're a broke-ass friend who needs a little extra money, don't be afraid to ask for a little handouts because we all are suffering. And the fair democratic thing to do is to all suffer as equally as possible, in my opinion. I think that's the only fair way to go about it. Um, at the beginning of this pandemic, I, I actually gave uh, some of my friends and some of my old bars uh, some money. And uh, now I'm the shoes on my foot, baby. Now I'm Mr. Fucking. Uh, <laughs> now I'm holding up my sign on the side of the road, you know, saying will will web design and video edits for food. That's where I'm at. But, you know, like like I've said before, when I, whenever I'm broke, I, it brings out the best in me. So I, I kind of just remind myself that. And I, I always just try to say in my head, like, it's just fucking money. It's just money, guys. It comes and goes in many ways. It's completely made up anyways <laughs> by the government. So, you know, it's nothing worth like having serious mental breakdowns about, you know, I've been broke. I've been dead. You just you just deal with it. They can't lock you up. So uh, without further ado. Um, on to the meat of this episode. This episode has really inspired me all week to make. Um, you know, a lot of times these shows are, you know, let's be honest, it's a last minute thing for me. It's, it's, it's on, it's a Monday night, like, oh, well, what should I talk about? Well, I'll talk about my life and some movie that maybe I watched. This one's different. This one I was truly inspired i truly had like that uh feeling of oh my god this is what the show is going to be about i even came with a name immediately so sue me um because you know i was uh watching some youtube clips of uh ed sullivan and the beatles and i thought it was funny at first because there's a there's a video of them playing like their early days actually i don't think it's ed sullivan i'm gonna look it up really quick uh but I was watching a YouTube video um, with the Beatles and and uh, it was clearly like lip synced, <laughs> like like the whole thing, like uh, like Ringo is not playing the drums at all on time. And it's like sounds too perfect. And if you ever listen to real Beatles concerts, you can't hear shit because all it is is women going, oh, my God, oh, 
God, just screaming and screaming and screaming. So anytime you just see them just just dancing around and playing the song, it sounds exactly like the record. It's total bullshit. Um, and uh, that's why, like, too, with the whole, like, lip syncing thing, I think that, like, now it's become way more, like, overblown than it used to be. Uh, you know, because because people we've we, people have been doing the lip syncing like since uh, music has been on TV, uh, because, you know, back then, whenever it was just live, you couldn't fucking afford the airtime to have some mess up or have a string break or something. And just a simple like combination of visual and music blew enough 50s and 60s people away that you didn't have to be like, oh, well, it's real, too. They're actually doing it. Which uh, is funny because I was actually shooting a uh, a video for a DJ once out here, and whenever like DJs in in like people in, like clubs get videos made, and I've been a part of this, I've been part of the editing. What they like to do is they like to make a compilation kind of video, like a lot of like a montage kind of clip of people dancing. I'm turning the little dials on the DJ deck, you know, and you know, just like putting my hands in the air. But the soundtrack is completely just like a track they recorded. And so, you know, we're just like kind of making up this performance <laughs> whenever we cut it together. And I just had this like big thing like a couple of years ago where I was like, I don't want to do that. I was like, I, there was a there's a uh, DJ here. I'll go ahead and say his name. His name is Nyrus. He's really good. He's really talented. Um, and I went to go record with me and another person. I wanted to do a two camera live recording, like straight up. I, in my mind, I was picturing like Woodstock recordings. Like, like I basically made the arguments to the artist that if like a hundred years from now, would you rather have like some like dated, like, like, like 2010 style, like hype video, or would you want to see like you're there in the audience and like really experience, um, you know, what it's like to be there, your, your mess ups, your successes, everything is true and real. You know, there was even like, uh, people, you know, doing uh hula hoops, and all kinds of cool shit. And everyone was dancing with the beat. It looked great, I thought. It was a little bit rough in the sense that uh it was a little rough in the camera work, but I kind of like that. I like, you know, I like that the cameras were on stabilizer, but they were like moving around and like maybe couldn't find the right spot, maybe coming in and out of focus. If you ever had the displeasure of seeing my future film thrown, you'll know that I like that technique, maybe a little too much of, uh, of, uh, saying fuck you to, uh, tripods and still shots and, uh, doing everything like kind of crazy and wild, um, in the camera. So that's what I did. And, and I really like it a lot. It's like one of my favorite things I shot, but I had to convince this guy. I was like, you know, cause he wanted just the, just the regular um, shoot like we always did, or we just like shoot a bunch of cool, like, you know, a sexy woman dancing and him like, you know, t pressing the buttons and whatnot. And then just cut that together to make a cool, like hype video style thing. And I like was adamant, like in my little edit room <laughs> in my Gavin, I was like, I'm not doing that. And you need to give this a shot because I think that this is the way to go. And I have, a little bit of artistic integrity <laughs> that I, that for me to do this and like do it without charging money or nothing. Like I want to like try it my way, damn it. You know? So 
We did, and uh, no one liked it. <laughs> like, no one liked it. He immediately went back to the old formats. It was too raw. And, and, no, and, and also, maybe that's why I do podcasts now. Uh, the video that I made was like an hour and 30 minutes long. <laughs> it was literally the entire show. It was like you had a virtual pass to see the show. And uh, unfortunately, these goddamn 90s babies do not have the attention span to uh, put that on or care about it. So uh, shooting a miss. But I thought about that watching the Beatles. I was like, wow, like uh, they fucking did that same thing back then. Like they didn't care, you know. Uh, so it's, it's pretty funny. And, uh, also, you know, I was thinking about kind of, kind of Beatlemania in general, like just kind of how, how insane it is. Um, you know, whenever you see like those pictures of, of those women, like not just like cheering them on, but like going into frantic, like crying, like just lo- like, like, like there's like a mind control device in the audience. It's kind of spooky. Like, and, and whenever they, you know, uh, play and it actually is a live concert, you just hear this like crazy, ah, like this just constant whine that goes over everything. What's very, very similar to this is actually uh, if you watch videos in North Korea, whenever Kim Jong-un like goes to a like uh, basketball, uh, basketball game or something and everyone gets up and just screams and cries until like for a ridiculous amount of time, it's the same thing. Like uh, whenever John Lennon you know, said that, you know, that they're bigger than Jesus. He wasn't wrong in the sense of popularity. And I say this as a Christian person. I really do like, uh, sorry, Jesus, like, you know, you are the better one, but there, there was a brief period. I would have to say in the, uh, in the sixties that the Beatles were more popular and it was just, there was a fact that he said, and this is also a good time for me to, uh, come in with a kind of a downer, facts, but I think it's important to say because I don't want this show to seem uh, so much like I'm just like worshiping um, the Beatles, especially John Lennon, because the truth is that, you know, I think John Lennon, like many artists, uh, was extremely talented, but very flawed. And in some ways that if he was alive today, he would be totally on the Me Too train. So, yeah, just a, you know, disclaimer on uh, on John Lennon. Uh, you know, just to kind of do a a good news, bad news thing with the bad news first, um, is that John Lennon had an extremely uh, flawed personal life. Uh, and by flawed, I mean he was a fucking asshole to the people who loved him a lot, especially with women. Um, he's admitted, and he's admitted this, this isn't like an allegation, he actually says this in a Playboy magazine, that he was a quote-unquote hitter. That whenever he got into an issue with a woman, uh, he had no problem just beating the hell out of him, just smacking him, throwing him around. He did it. It's it's it. He admits it. Um, I, I it's it's sad how th- that you know that's something that's really new <laughs> to like no is totally not okay. Um, it's something that I assumed, you know, being born in 88, that, that's like never acceptable, but you'll find a lot of stories like that where, you know, a lot of people thought if a woman was going crazy, you give them a smack and, uh, out, outside of a very dark joke, like I, I, that's, that's totally unacceptable. I, I hate that shit more than anything. Whenever I hear about friends that I know who have gotten into that, it's just disgusting. It's just get a get a fucking hold of yourself, you know. Um, and he also was a was a really terrible father. 
Um, Julian, his first son, he says in an interview, uh, was not planned that he came quote out of a whiskey bottle and, uh, just, just, just basically pretended like he didn't have a, a son for a long time or a wife. His wife, Cynthia, um, had to be kept under wraps, uh, while they were touring because their manager Epstein, um, thought that they needed to be single, that they would, you know, that their fans like couldn't deal with it if one of them was married. So he just pretended basically he didn't have a wife and kid while he was touring and stuff. And then of course, with, uh, with Yoko, um, you know, he, he just, uh, he just, he just found Yoko and said, fuck everyone else. Fuck Julian, fuck Cynthia. And, uh, you know, poor Cynthia, we just have to just like put up with it. And like in basically she would, I mean, she, the, John had tons and tons of fans like wanting his dick all the time. And he would sometimes let it go. And, and just like Cynthia just had to just deal with that because she was getting paid millions of dollars and, you know, and all of this stuff. And, um, you know, she just put up with it, but, you know, e even with like the Yoko years, whenever he first met Yoko, he was just so blatant about, you know, being infatuated with this woman that isn't his like son's you know, mother, that is like just some art, art chick that he found. And, uh, you know, uh, whenever they split up, whenever Cynthia and John split up, uh, it was, uh, it was, it was a very weird dicey situation that I'll talk about later. Um, but just wanted to like say that outright because, I know that this that this show is mostly singing the praises of the Beatles and as artists, I love them. But just like a certain artist whose initials is MJ, there's certain, you know, we have to take the good and the bad of it, you know, so I just want to just just to say that right out. You can do your own research on it, but he was a total fucking asshole uh, to the people he loved besides the band, besides the fans, you know, and stuff like that. So uh, do your own research on it and uh, just keep that in mind. Hope you enjoy the rest of the show. <laughs> so what, uh, you know, kind of inspired me too, to, to do this show uh, about the Beatles was uh, number one, because I have this pirate radio podcast where I really don't give a damn about copyright and stuff. Uh, this is like the perfect test. Um, because like the, the Beatles, I mean, are, it's like next to like Led Zeppelin, maybe Led Zeppelin's a little bit harder, but I'm not, not only am I going to talk about the Beatles, I'm going to play their music too, because that's to me and just silly to not do that. There's a, 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 an instance that happened with a uh, Jimi Hendrix actually with Andre 3000 made a Jimi Hendrix movie that no one knows about. And the reason no one knows about this movie is because the family of Jimi Hendrix, like their entire life is protecting his music copyright. Like he has a, he has a sort of an extended family who have like a trust with all of his music rights. And not only do they, do they ask for like ridiculous amounts of money for anything that has Jimi Hendrix in it, they have weird clauses against uh, one being uh, drug use. You cannot, you cannot play a Jimi Hendrix song in a movie or anything that has any kind of drug use attached to it at all, which is a nice sentiment, but give me a fucking break. You're going to make a Jimi Hendrix film about his life and oh man, like I'll pass on the grass. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, no, that's fucking ridiculous. But that's what they had to do with this stupid movie is they decided instead they were just going to make like sort of Jimi Hendrix songs 
and they just sound stupid and weird. It's like because it, it's, it's just like it's just it's him like mocking in a way like Jimi Hendrix music by playing shitty sort of versions of it whenever they could have just gotten over it and just put in the fucking music. If I was in their situation, I would just done it and said, come sue me. Who cares? <laughs> but that's because I have very little amounts of assets and I'm what uh, I found out is called uncollectible. <laughs> if I, uh, get in any trouble. So what are you going to do? You're going to take my cats. That's about it. This microphone I'm talking into is about $80. Good luck, Apple core. So, uh, back to, back to the Beatles, you know, what's, what's fascinating with them is how young they were. Okay. Uh, George Harrison started in the Beatles whenever he was 15 years old. How old do you think he was whenever the Beatles quit? You know, maybe he's like 30 or something. He was 27, 27 years old. And you have created all of these albums and all of this music, like this, this, this like genre industry changing stuff. And you do it like by the time you're 27 years old, he wrote, here comes the sun whenever he was 25, I think, let me look it up. So, you know, George wrote while my guitar gently weeps, uh, whenever he was like 25 years old. That's just that to me is just 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 insane. And uh, it's, I think it's what uh, really makes them just in such a great place at the right at such a uh, such a right time at the right place kind of band is that, you know, you had like the baby boomers, all of these like teenagers around the 60s from the parents of, you know, uh, returning soldiers from World War Two. So they really did like represent like the kids you know, and they were always kids, even during all of their transformative stuff and going to India and all of this stuff. And not to mention the tons of money, which I'll get to in a minute. Uh, you know, they were in their teens and twenties. Um, you know, lo a lot of the deals like, like that, uh, like the, like the Lennon McCartney, uh, songwriting credits, uh, clause that they have or anything they write is always attributed to, uh, to both of them and not one of them, even if one of them clearly just wrote the whole thing. That was like, that was like contract they wrote together whenever they were like 14 years old, <laughs> you know, as a matter of fact, a lot, they, uh, even though near the end of their career, you know, they had a lot of dish issues and broke up. Um, one of the things that Paul has said is that what made them like really cohesive and work well in the beginning is that they got all of like that stuff out of the way, all like the pain of coming together and whatnot. And like, you know, figuring out like who gets what credit and stuff. They figure that all out way in advance. It's pretty smart. So, you know, uh, with them, with them being, being so young and, you know, the, the Beatlemania <laughs> that took over, you know, something that I always think about whenever I see like the crazy, like screaming fans is uh, what would happen if they caught him? You know, like, uh, like I imagine that it, you know, there's only one other like artist I've seen this like actually happen where a fan like goes up, and that's Michael Jackson. And Michael Jackson, this has this is not going to be a joke about little kids, okay? <laughs> but this was a grown ass woman. I'm just going to say for the record. But there was once where, uh, you know, he would always get like chased by people too, but not, not maybe as much as the Beatles. But, uh, one time he just told the security, just, ah, oh, just let it go, let it go. And, uh, some woman who was like probably in her late twenties just, just goes up to Michael and just, just grabs him by the waist. 
and just like won't let go and is crying and hugging him and saying, oh, I love you so much. It was a British lady too. He's like, I love you so much. I just love you so much. And, uh, you know, he just kind of just went with it. So I figured that's like the best case scenario is, you know, maybe they would just kind of get like dogpiled a little bit, you know, maybe they just want to get one. But uh, were they ever worried that they would like get stripped and raped or like murdered? John was worried about that. And that unfortunately was a good call on his part. Uh, but he, John was always very, very worried and like paranoid that the fans would literally kill them if they were caught and stuff. And Paul just loved it. <laughs> you know, that, that's what kind of makes the Beatles such an interesting dynamic is that, you know, you got like Paul, who's like the the showman of the band and like everyone loves Paul. Paul loves the people. Paul always wanted a tour he just even whenever they started getting the more experimental stuff he's like no no no, we can do this on stage we'll figure it out like we have to tour so you got him and then you got like the philosopher sort of more reserved art the philosopher maybe maybe more egocentric uh but in a different way uh john lennon you know was a brilliant songwriter and a poet and author type and then you got, you know, the quiet and respected George Harrison, which I think, you know, most people uh, put in their favorite Beatles category, you know, just just because, you know, he's quiet. You know, he uh, was a fantastic songwriter. Here Comes the Sun is still the number one Beatles uh, track downloaded online by far. It always has been. And it's one of my favorites, too. It's a beautiful, beautiful fucking song. Um, which he actually wrote uh, playing hooky from the band, which is super funny. He uh he got really he was getting tired of recording constantly with the group. And so one day he uh, went off to uh, I think it was Eric Clapton's like estates and uh, played sick. He was like, oh, I'm too sick to come in and uh, just stayed on his estate. And, and whenever he had his, his brief few days, uh, he just wrote, uh, here comes the sun. Everything's going to be OK, you know, and uh, turns out to be the greatest song, according to iTunes and everything that they ever wrote. Um, so you got him and then Ringo is just the, the right person in the right place at the right time. Like, you know, his, uh, his, b before, uh, Ringo, they had another, uh, drummer like called Pete Best and goddamn Pete, what a, what a shitty hand you got in life. Um, because, uh, he, uh there's, uh, I forgot the reasons. I don't really want to look it up either. It's not really that important. But um, early on, Brian Epstein told them they needed a new, new drummer and brought in Ringo, who's a little bit older and uh, a little bit more of like a stage presence. But even Ringo admits that he is nowhere on the level of of Paul, George and John. Like he just he just knows he's like whenever whenever he would, you know, come in and do his job, he did what they fucking said. And that was it. And uh, there was occasions where this actually caused a lot of uh, it caused some stress in him. But he, he mostly was a good sport about it, you know, which I would be, too. That's what I always think about with Ringo. Ringo is sort of like the self insert for a fan in that situation, because the, the, the licks that he played on drums were super fucking easy. Like anyone could do them, um, you know, and he had to like play along with the whole Beatlemania and stuff. And he did like all of them have kind of a pouty moments in the end. Uh, actually it's during the white album, the song, uh, back in the USSR, which, uh, by the way, is basically a fuck you to the beach boys. Listen to that song again and listen to the middle section. It is a total ripoff of California girls, but they just make it about like, a 
girls in the Ukraine and stuff. It's it's basically a mockery of uh, American rock and roll. Those limey fucking bastards. Maybe next episode will be about the Beach Boys. The Beach Boys are actually like one of my top top three. Good Vibrations is without a doubt my favorite uh, song in the universe. Um, if if I'm ever like uh, stuck somewhere and there's like a musical code to come find me, um, it's gonna be that. So just just know that if if I'm ever like in a some sort of like a Power Ranger style like cavern, and uh, you come up to like the the gates, and uh, there's like a there's like a keyboard password. It's 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 good vibrations. Um, totally ripped that off by the way by Lost. <laughs> that is uh, season three finale, I believe, is whenever. The uh, Looking Glass Station is uh, controlled by, via a musical password, which is uh, Good Vibrations. The whole thing, too. It's so fucking ridiculous. Like, you would think, like, it would just be a good, 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 good vibrations, and that would be it. But no, like, they have to start with, I, I love the colorful clothes you wear. It's like, he has to, <laughs> Charlie has to play the whole goddamn song on a keypad <laughs> to get in. But it was cute. I liked it. So yeah, you know, uh, the Beatlemania thing to me is, is what really fascinated me. It's, it lets me kind of do a cool cover of this too, especially just with them just like freaking out and screaming and stuff. And, you know, it looks like they had a lot of fun with it, but it's just something I, I've thought about a lot. Like, what would they do? Like, would they just like start tearing off clothes? Like, would they get like murdered? <laughs> like, would they just start like sucking their dicks? Like, who knows? Who knows what would happen? It'd be interesting. I, I bet Paul wondered all the time. Yeah, maybe we just let him come. <laughs> I can't do a good uh, Beatles accent. Thank God for Danny at the beginning of this show to help me put it together because I can't really do a good Liverpool accent. Um, so, uh, you know, that that's the, the Beatlemania days. And as they got uh, super, super rich, of course, they came into everyone's favorite uh, part of civil life, and that is taxes. In the UK, there was a 95% tax rate um, on people of their income. Uh, that's why in the song Taxman, it says uh, one It says uh, one for you, 19 for me, because that's what they got fucking taxed by the, by the British IRS uh, was 95% of their income um, whenever they became millionaires. Fun fact, too, is that that is their first political song. Um, even though, like, John Lennon is a really big, obviously, like, political character, they've only made, like, like two, maybe three. But I would say three. There's, like, the Piggy song, and then, of course, Revolution, and then uh, Taxman. And what's interesting about their uh, political songs is that they're kind of more like right-wing, like libertarian ideas than like super hippie stuff. Like they, you know, obviously Taxman is about like these bastards um, taking their money. And then Revolution is all about like, you know, uh, people, you know, who want violence and people who like just want to say they're in a revolution and not actually like contribute to fix it and stuff. And it and it, it it used to have a line about uh Chairman Mao. It's like something like uh, but if you want to get involved with Chairman Mao, we don't like want you anyhow. It's like one of those lines. Um, and it was uh only on a few records. And John Lennon actually said once that it's the most important line on there. They was very anti Mao and sort of like the radical left um side of revolution and stuff. He just wanted to take some LSD guys and relax and not go to war. I, you know, I, I can dig that message. 
so that's that's uh you know the tax man came out of that <laughs> is that they got taxed to bejesus and so they were trying to think of ways to like get around this you know and they uh they had an accountant who said that they had like two million pounds and they could either basically give that all away to the to the to the crown or they can invest it into a business and so while they were high as a kite on acid they came up with this hilarious pun called apple core <laughs> where because it's apple it's like core like c-o-r-p and they just thought that was the funniest shit because they were high on the pot and uh decided to name a basically a corporation that made albums that made electronics that did everything except for give that money to the irs or give or give that money to the I should just look up what the fuck this says. I have a computer right in front of me. I don't want to be so stupid. <sighs> British income tax. Taxation in the United Kingdom. That would be Her Majesty's uh, Revenue and Customs. Isn't that cool? I love the UK for shit like that. Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. That sounds so much cooler than the IRS, the fucking internal revenue service. Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. It's great. But they owed a load of pounds to Her Majesty, and they decided to start a business. And uh, of all the things they did with that business, the most consequential turned out to be the name. No one yet had decided to use the word Apple, to describe a company of that size. And so they did. They made the Apple Corps in the 60s. And then a couple computer nerds in Palo Alto in 1978 decided to create their own computer company. And that company was called Apple Computers. And this started this silly-ass lawsuit that on both sides... Like, it's just, it, it, it's it, it, like, like, I can't think of them with like a straight face, like talking about all this because they, it was just nonstop. So first, first they get sued just for the name um, because Apple Corps has all this fucking money in lawyers and they're just a little computer company out of, out of California. And they have, and, and because Apple computers is in that situation, they don't have enough like cash to really defend this so much, so much, which would change in a few decades, <laughs> a little, a little, uh, spoiler alert that will change radically. Um, but at the time, you know, just these computer guys out of there and, um, they basically just, uh, made, made an agreement with, uh, with Apple, uh, core that, that they will not get into anything but computers with app with Apple and they'll stay away from all things music related and Apple core on their, in their part will, uh, not, uh, make computers. Um, all right, I'm about to have, I just had to calm down from a, uh, from nearly uh, destroying my microphone and recorder <laughs> at that, because uh, it's eleven thirty at night, and I just talked into a recorder that was not recording for about an hour and a half. Turns out I left the hold button on, so now I'm going to go back into the story that I just said uh, to my cat, I guess. Which is the story of Apple Computers versus Apple Core. Uh, so Apple Core is created in the late 60s. 
um, to hide money from the tax man, basically. They had two million pounds and their accountant said, hey, instead of giving this away in taxes, you could you should start a corporation with this money. You should invest it and build a corporation. And the Beatles boys with their hashish in their system thought it would be super funny to to call it Apple Core. Apple C O R P, like a like a like a Marine Corps. So hilarious. And uh they just just basically it was just like a shell company to hide uh tax money. Um, but they, you know, ended up taking advantage of it because they're creative people. So they had Apple Records, which is what produced all the Beatles records. They also had uh, Apple Films, where they created, you know, Hard Day's Night and um, or, or I mean, a Magical Mystery Tour and all of their like funny little movies they made with this uh, film division. And then their other division was Apple Electronics. And uh, Apple Electronics is a really funny story that kind of deserves its own part here uh, because it was founded or run. I mean, it was founded by the Beatles, but it was run by a character named Magic Alex. Magic Alex was a uh, Greek student who came to Liverpool and ran into John Lennon and gave him a flashing light box. It was a box that was filled with lights and it randomly blinked and he gave this to John Lennon and John Lennon would stare at this for days on LSD. He thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And so after he was mystified by this box with LEDs in it uh, or whatever the hell they had instead of LEDs in the 60s, I don't know if they did have that. I don't think so. I think that was a little too soon. It's probably like Christmas lights or something. Uh, but he wowed him with this box and then started claiming that he was like a master inventor and could, could build anything that he was, he said that he had plans to make uh, paint that could be electrically changed to any color you wanted. Uh, he said that he had, um, he had a way to embed speakers into wallpaper. So you could just paint wallpaper anywhere and you could, you know, have the, have music play out of it. He had all these like crazy claims and, uh, Probably thanks to drugs, uh, John Lennon and co thought this guy's a fucking genius. You can have as much money as you want to come up with all these crazy inventions you got there. And so while uh, the Beatles were out, you know, doing their thing and recording and in India and stuff, Alex stayed behind and created his own electronics company in Apple Corps. And, uh, by all accounts, uh, he did jack shit <laughs> while he had all this money and was putting stuff together. Really, he had balls of steel. Uh, he had massive balls to just take all this cash and do nothing. Uh, because the one job that the Beatles did give Alex to do, uh, besides like sort of pie in the sky, impossible electronic ideas, was that Alex was there to build them a new studio, damn it. Alex claimed that he could come up with a 72 track recording studio and, and also had a, had a sonic force field that he would surround Ringo's drums with. So he, so you wouldn't need to have like those like plastic uh, glass barriers around the drums while you recorded amazing, compelling stuff. So they gave him a boatload of fucking money. They gave him about 5.2 million pounds in today's money uh, to put together this studio and uh, whenever they returned from overseas to come check it out and start recording Let It Be, 
all there was was a piece of wood that had some dials and shit stuck to it and then an oscilloscope and uh alex was in a lab coat with a uh clipboard <laughs> like 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 a movie character or something and it was about that time that even john lennon was kind of looking at him like oh you you actually can't uh make any of this stuff i think we, i think we've been had <laughs> and and so uh they had to call back in like george martin to rebuild the studio like it was like ridiculous like, it wasn't even like like if you were to give me like millions of dollars to put a studio although granted i am an audio recording expert thank you very much um i'd at least like buy you know like a like a hundred dollar like mixer and shits and like you know some speakers and just plug them in and say, oh, well, that's all you need, and I'll, I'll pocket the rest. This guy, like, didn't even, like, plug in the speakers. Like, like, they came in, and there was, like, 16 speakers set up that were totally unplugged. Um, he forgot to include any way for the band to communicate with the with the uh, recording engineer, what they call a talkback system. Uh, that was not included at all for some reason. And, like I said, they basically had to have... Uh, real engineers come in and tear the whole thing out and he was he was found out and uh instead of suing them or anything they just kind of let him go uh there actually is a, is a side story too with alex that um that maybe explains why he was kind of let to get away with all of the shenanigans and and that is that there's a there's a theory that he was used in a very diabolical way to get uh cynthia lennon to uh, split up with uh, John so he could be with Oko without it, without it costing him a fucking fortune in divorce. And the the story of how it happened was that um, Magic Alex and his girlfriend and uh, John Lennon and his wife at the time, Cynthia, all went to the Greek islands for a vacation, you know, uh, go around on boats and, and take acid and stuff. Which, uh, by the way, like, you know, I'm bringing up LSD a lot in this, like John Lennon has claimed that he's done it like over a thousand times that it was like pretty much like nonstop for a while that <laughs> he was like more times than not that he was like tripping out than experiencing reality and his poor fucking wife, uh, you know, never wanted to do it. Like, you know, and, and anytime she was like coerced into doing it, it was, she just tell stories that it's like the worst thing ever. Like they were, they, they would, they, they would just, you know, they would be in cars and like Ringo would be driving like high out of his mind and like freaking her the fuck out. They'd go to clubs and then can you imagine uh, going in public at, to, to any of the people who are listening to this who might have experienced psychedelics before. I cannot think of a more nightmarish scenario than to go be high on acid and then have tons of screaming fans <laughs> like recognize my friend or husband and are like running up to me and stuff. That's just like crazy terrifying. And she just had all these stories about how that would happen. And then she would also, like, she talks about how her and her friend were at a, uh, were at, were at a club and they took acid they didn't want to take. They were actually, like, tricked into it at first. That's, that's another funny story about the Beatles and LSD is that, uh, they were like, they, they, a dentist, a fucking dentist friend of theirs, um, basically spiked their coffee one day while they were just drinking coffee. And that's how like most, except for Paul McCartney, everyone I think, but Paul McCartney uh, was dosed accidentally 
recently with LSD. And John Lennon fucking loved it. Uh, you know, uh, George and Ringo were like, oh, it's okay. Um, the wives that were there really didn't like it. Uh, they talk about how they went to a went to a club afterwards and thought it was on fire and that they were going to burn alive in the building. Fun stuff. And then uh, actually Paul McCartney uh, was really, really resistant to ever, ever taking it. He was definitely like the the straight-laced guy of all of them, you know. And uh, he finally did. And it was okay, uh, you know, but, uh, but, you know, it, it, like they were dosed. That's how they got started. And poor, poor fucking Cynthia. So, you know, back to the story on the Greek islands while they were tripping out and traveling around. At one point, uh, John goes home early and uh, Cynthia and Alex and his girlfriend are sailing around and then they come back to John's house. And what do they find in John's house? They find fucking Yoko Ono and John sitting like across from each other, just staring into their eyes, perfectly silent, just just nonstop. And uh, Cynthia's heartbroken, obviously. I mean, she's had to put up with this shit all the time. But um, I, I think I think when it came to Yoko Ono, it was just it was just way different. And that's a sad thing when with uh, with with abusive like cheating relationships is it doesn't really matter until it's someone you know they really love. Like, I'm sure she didn't like the fact that, she, that he was probably boning every every other fucking groupie that he was attracted to that was, like, running after him. But Yoko, it was, like, this deep, deep fucking infatuation and love he had with this, uh, you know, artist chick. And I'm sure that kind of hurt extra, extra hard. So she ended up going back to the house with uh, Magic Alex and his girlfriend. And there's two stories to this. Uh, Magic Alex's story is that um, they started drinking and then they uh, had sex and uh, they felt really bad about it afterwards, but it happened. And then Cynthia's story is that um, she got drunk, yes, but then just went to bed and then Magic Alex wouldn't stop like caressing her and like kissing her while she was sleeping, but nothing happened. The reason why this ties together with kind of Alex not getting totally like sued and shit for the end of all of his shenanigans is that 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 adultery thing is what is is what helped kind of get John Lennon off the hook with the uh, with the divorce because I don't know much about divorces but um there's like you know no fault divorces and then there's like if your fucking wife you know was fucking your assistant you know then that's different and so that's uh i guess uh that that was sort of like a diabolical allegedly thing that out magic alex did uh was uh set up cynthia for an affair with him so that uh john lennon could uh could without so much guilt and legal troubles go ahead and just move on to yoko on a full time so he's a really cool dude magic alex <laughs> uh after he was found out um with the recording studio shenanigans uh he actually he got a job uh, building uh, anti-terrorism cars for uh, kings and queens and VIP people. Um, just like before, he just would make up shit. <laughs> and he was like, oh, yeah, I got like these bulletproof cars um, that I'm selling. And uh, he decided to sell a fleet to King Hussein of Jordan. And uh, much smarter than the fucking acid head Beatles, this king just bought like uh, eight of the cars and then sent a few on the desert and just had his boys light them up with machine guns. And sure enough, they were not bulletproof. As a matter of fact, there was a defect in the fuel tank that made them explode whenever they were shot. 
So the king, you know, went back to Alex and was like, uh, yeah, I need, I'm, I'm returning all of these. And the one that I blew up, you're going to pay me for, <laughs> you know, get the fuck out of here. Uh, so that was the end of magic. Alex's shenanigans. Uh, and, uh, that in, like I said, it's kind of a bigger tangent from the Apple computers versus Apple core story, which I will now return to. So now it's, uh, it's, it's 1978 and Apple core is suing a new little computer startup company out of Palo Alto, California that is called Apple computers. And at the time, uh, Apple computers just said, all right, you got us. We got the same name. We won't ever have anything to do with music. Um, as long as you guys agree not to enter the computer business. Now they had the electronic business, but different thing. So just, they just couldn't make computers. And that was the piece for a while. Uh, but then in the, but then as computers grew up and as they got more and more capabilities, of course, music's going to come into play. And uh, Steve Jobs' attitude about the whole thing, especially in the early days, was just kind of let them come and get us, you know, like, who who gives a fuck? Like, oh, yeah, sure, sure, Beatles. Like, we won't use music in our computers. That's insane. Who would use music in a computer? Um, so they just kept that up. And then in about 1986, Apple started adding uh, MIDI controllers and audio recording capabilities to their computers. And they got fucking sued again. And this time they didn't win and uh, they just straight up had to just take all that shit out. And uh, which is a shame because you would think of like, you know, all the creative applications that Apple does, even though I'm not the biggest fan myself, I think they're a little overrated in that, in that, in that, uh, in that department, save that story for another time. <laughs> but, you know, uh, like the Amiga and the Commodore had like tons of computer uh, music interfaces that were amazing. Like, like the Commodore, you could actually put a uh, piano keyboard over the keys and then just play it like a synthesizer. It's fucking badass. But Apple, sadly, because of their damn name, couldn't do that. And now we fast forward to the 90s. The 90s and a guy named Jim Reeks. Jim Reeks is your classic 90s looking computer nerd. I love watching old uh, like videos and movies of, of like like old like Palo Alto people. They always got those like baggy shirts on and shit and like the long hair and the glasses. Those are my kind of computer people, by the way. I actually have a very bad bigotry towards attractive computer people. If you're some fucking hunk and you know how to like you know, fix computers and do all that. I just, I can't trust you. I just don't. It's, it's, it's sad. I call it sexism, but, uh, there's a few people I know who are like, uh, way too attractive to be in it. I'm like, what are you doing, dude? Save this for the ugly people. All right. So anyways, Jim Reeks is a sound engineer, uh, for Apple computers and is in charge of making all the little bleeps and bloops that, uh, play inside the computer. So, uh, you know, he comes up with all this stuff and, and like, and like with the, with the lawsuit with Apple, there can be nothing related to music at all. So if you look into the system sounds of, of a Macintosh back then, you'll never see like violin or guitar or the name of the instrument playing a sound. It's always something weird and like, a, like moose, or it'll be like rain, or it'll be like a weird word, um, that has nothing to do with a sound. And that's because of the fucking lawsuits. That's because they they could not do that. Because if they put in like violin sound in the computer, then Apple will be on their or then the Beatles would be on their ass about it. So they just didn't. And this really pissed off Jim Reeks. 
he did not, he just wasn't having it and uh, was kind of a little prankster about putting in stuff. Uh, one, one example is uh, the, 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 the little chime sound that you hear on a Mac. I'm going to play it for you right now. This sound is actually not called chime. It is called Sosumi. And the reason it's called Sosumi is because it sounds like the word Sosumi. But at the time, uh, you know, they wanted just to name it Chimes. And basically, Jim just forgot to rename the shit's Chimes to something else. And then uh, Apple Corps got in their ass about it. And so first he said he wanted to rename it to Let It Beep. <laughs> but uh, that was a little too on the nose. So they named it to Sosumi, which he said it was a Japanese word, but it actually is just a phonetic pun for Sosumi, like as in Sosumi, John. <laughs> and uh, in addition to that, he uh, did another um, sort of rebel move, which is the sound that Apple computers used to make whenever you turn them on, that boo sound. Uh, that is, that is basically a reimagining of the last chord in a day of life. And, uh, he didn't even have permission to put this on the computers, which is super funny. Originally the computers just made a, just a regular kind of beep whenever they rebooted. And Jim thought that it was like annoying because you had to hear the sound all the time because computers sucked ass back then and needed to be rebooted all the time. So he wanted to come up with like a more fun sound uh, to have. And a lot of people were not into it. And, you know, he uh, he pulled the old uh, just ask for forgiveness instead of permission move and basically had had him and his buddies change the ROM on the Apple computers to just have the sound. And then by the time the higher ups found out about by the times the higher ups figured out what he was doing they made up some bullshit that was like well if we take it out now it might like mess up the the operating system so we just might as well just leave it <laughs> so you can thank him for that sound that used to be on the computers i found out now because i haven't uh i haven't owned a mac since like 2012 that now they like there's no sound it's kind of sad it just turns on yeah well i guess it's just the way it works sometimes but that's uh, Jim Reeks, you can thank for Sosumi and the uh, original Mac Chime. He also uh, invented the uh, camera sound in the iPhone, which is his own camera. And he was in recently a CNBC interview talking about this. And the, uh, the person uh, giving the interview made this really like snide comment to him. Like basically he, he was explaining... He was explaining to the woman how whenever he worked for Apple, he worked at like the worst time because he worked in like the late 90s, like right before the dot com bubble and then basically sold all of his options uh, before he left the company, which would make him a multimillionaire like today, like once Steve Jobs came back in the picture. And, uh, like, uh, the interviewer goes, so do you sometimes feel like the unluckiest man in the world? And he just stops and he goes, do you really want to see me cry right now? Which is funny and just a joke, but Jesus Christ lady. Like, yeah, I'm sure he's not that happy that he still has to like have a job and stuff. Whenever <laughs> he could be a multimillionaire, like take it easy guys. So that was the nineties Apple having to deal with that. And, uh, they actually ended up uh, having to settle again for, uh, $26.5 million to the richest band in the world. You know, just fucking ridiculous. They just, just, that's lawyers for you, baby, is there's always someone else to pay. And so they, they would pay, pay this goddamn money to Apple, uh, core. 
And then uh, they came up to a settlement that said, okay, you guys can use the music terms in your in your software. That's fine. You can even plug in instruments, blah, 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 blah. But what you can't do, you son of a bitch, Steve Jobs, what you cannot do is you cannot package, sell, or distribute music. Can't do that. Not going to be allowed. So then we go around to September 2003. Now we have the iTunes store. We have the iPod, which is clearly Apple selling music. Now they try to get around it with the iTunes word. Notice that, by the way. It wasn't Apple Music at first. Um, but Apple Core got in, their, got in their fucking case about that. And said, oh, you, we said that you can't sell music with this name. And then the Apple computer lawyers came back and said, well, you said we can't sell physical music. This is a whole different game. And so uh, Apple Core, after hearing this shenanigan uh, wordplay, said, fuck you. Uh, you can't, we're shutting this whole goddamn iTunes store down. And, uh, the, and basically what their idea was with Apple core, cause they're just greedy assholes was that, that was that they knew that Apple had to use the iTunes store. They were riding on everything with their iPod and everything. And so what Apple core was basically bluffing and saying that they'll fucking pay anything like it's like you know they'll they'll give us another big settlement and uh we'll continue to play this game over and over again and uh they took it to england they took it to their home turf to to talk to a judge and they lost (laughs) apple core lost they lost to apple computers finally and the judge said, enough is a fuck enough with this. They made an argument that the, that the average idiot on the streets knows the difference between the Apple Core and Apple computers. They, there's, there's not like the reason the copyright laws exist is to prevent confusion. And at this point, Apple is huge. There's no confusion. Just fucking relax. And so they did. And so they were allowed to uh, continue um, on and have the iTunes store and make, you know, music apps and do all that kind of stuff. It was great. And as a matter of fact, what's, what's funny about this story is that, um, then they started turning it around, uh, around like, uh, around like the late two thousands, um, Apple computers, what really wanted the Beatles in the iTunes store. And, uh, Steve jobs, even with all this litigation was a gigantic Beatles fan, um, and would put the Beatles like in the, uh, iPod demos, even though they didn't have them in the store yet, because he just really, really wanted them and like was ready to pay anything to put them in the store. And then finally, uh, they did, they, they got the, uh, they got the Apple, uh, uh, that, or they they got the Beatles to uh, join the iTunes store, and as a matter of fact, they ended up um, uh, buying out Apple's Apple Core's trademark rights in total for five hundred million dollars. They just finally put an end to the, all of this bullshit and just paid the damn Beatle boys half a billion dollars to say we own that fucking Apple now. <laughs> the Apple is ours. And so they paid him half a billion dollars and now Apple doesn't even have to do all the iTunes and silly stuff or, or save their Apple computer. They're simply Apple now. And that is the fun, uh, interesting litigation story between Apple v. Apple. Jim left Apple in the late 90s. 
Unfortunately, my timing was pretty bad and I happened to leave like a year before the dot-com crash. And I walked away from tens of thousands of Apple options that would have made me probably $8 million today if I had kept them. So you don't have any sort of royalties on these sounds. Like why aren't you a, a billionaire right now? Yeah, well, you want to see a man cry? Something that I can really respect about the Beatles is that they knew when to end. Um, and this is something I hate to say because there, there's a lot of like great artists out there who continue kind of in their like 30s and 40s and stuff. But it's uh, sometimes it, it can be sad, you know, just it's, I don't know if you ever have seen like an like an old like classic like rock band like play on stage and stuff and they have like a new guitarist or something or like someone died of an overdose and they just keep them together. I think the Beatles did a really, really good job of all understanding that, you know, in their like late 20s, early 30s, that now's the time to cut it out. Now's the time that we just move on and, and it's going to be painful and it's time to go. So in about 1970, they uh, officially called it quits. Technically, the first person to quit the band was Ringo Starr during the uh, back in the USSR uh, tracks. He said that he's fucking out because he was pissed that they uh, they actually did the, the drums on that track is not Ringo. Uh, Ringo uh, was getting chastised by uh, John and Lennon and George because he couldn't play good enough for them. And so he just said, fuck you, I'm out, and just gave them the drumsticks. And so they recorded it without him. So he was the first one to kind of go, but then they ended up calling him and saying that he was the greatest rock drummer of all time and to please come back in. And so uh, the first person for real to quit was John. John, um, you know, was starting with Yoko Ono and was getting way, way more political and stuff. And uh, just basically told the band while they were recording the Abbey Road that he's out, that, you know, that this is it and it's time to move on and go. And uh, they made a deal. The management made a deal with them to not reveal that until like after the last albums were sold, which I don't understand the logic behind that. Like if, if I mean, if I was in their shoes, it'd be like, the Beatles are breaking up. So yeah, we need to like let everyone know so I can buy up these albums, baby, while they still can. But that's how it did. And then, then shortly after Paul confirmed it, that they were breaking up and, uh, the world was very, very sad about it. Obviously, although all of them had kick ass solo careers, which, you know, I think everyone's favorite is, uh, well, not everyone, but, uh, you know, the, the, for, I, I, my favorite, at least, is, of course, George Harrison. Um, All Things Must Pass is a beautiful, beautiful album. Uh, So it's like one of the best ever. And I, lo I love that. I might close I might close the show with that, um, deciding between that and another song. But, you know, he left Paul, you know, kind of kind of got to uh, go back to his Beatlemania days, which I think he was missing a lot, even though he wouldn't admit it was that Paul got to go back to playing before tons of crowds all the time. And now he is he, he's like this gigantic uh, superstar, obviously, but not just from the Beatles, just because he loves to play on stage. And, he, and even to this day, he's still playing everywhere. Uh, Ringo got a cool beard and sunglasses. <laughs> and then, um, you know, John Lennon, of course, got more into his political stuff. And with the Yoko Ono plastic band, he wrote that Imagine song, which is lame. Across the Universe is way better. <laughs> like, it's just, it's okay. It's uh, 
it's just it's not one of my favorites and i think it's kind of sad that that's the one everyone ha- puts with john lennon because he wrote so many other killer songs in the beatles um that's just kind of a that's and honestly it's, it's such a derivative ripoff in my opinion of other beatles songs too just not a big fan of imagine <laughs> but you know he left and he did that and uh in the in the years in the 70s uh, people were crazy about having them back together. There would be all of these cash offers that uh, super rich people would make, like $50 million. They would just make public statements that said, hey, if you, if you can get the fucking Beatles back together for like this one show somewhere, um, you know, we'll pay anything. And they had like their, like their ticket price was unlimited for so many people who wanted to see them back. There was a big research in the, in the 70s uh, with, with people missing the Beatles and a, a great story, which sounds a little too good to be true is, uh, during SNL, because there was all this like news hype about people paying money to get the Beatles back together. Uh, Lauren Michaels went on, went on stage at the beginning of a uh, SNL, uh, taping or a live taping. It's not called a taping. It's a, it's a performance. Sorry. Getting a little sleepy guys. The melatonin is kicking in. But, uh, he, uh, went on, he went on, on TV and offered $3,000 to get the Beatles back together tonight. He said, he said, uh, if, uh, if, if, uh, if, if, if the Beatles are listening right now, I'll pay And he had like, I think he had like the money on him or something. He's like, I'll pay $3,000 if they'll come do the show. And according to legend, uh, John Lennon and Paul McCartney were watching the show while it was happening and phoned each other. And just as like a gaff or just as, just as a gas, as they would call it, uh, were planning to do it. They were planning to go and just kind of blow fucking everyone's mind and show up uh, on Saturday Night Live and reunite. But sadly they didn't. And, uh. In my own opinion, I think that story is a little bit bullshit and made up because <laughs> there's still there's a lot of kind of, you know, hard feelings. Every breakup is hard. You know, we have to deal with it. But the definitive end of the Beatles was, of course, in in 1980, whenever uh, he was going back to his hotel room and a person named Mark David Chapman, who was a big fan of his. And uh, was also a fear that was always in John Lennon's mind that one day a crazy fan would 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 kill him. He was very worried about that. It's the reason why they stopped touring was he had a ton of anxiety and fear about that. And the sad thing was is that in the eighties um, he was kind of got he got kind of okay with it. You know, once Beatlemania kind of slowed down, it uh it it's it stopped bothering him so much. And he actually was noted to be very very kind with fans during those times and actually Mark David Chapman first met him earlier in the day uh, while he was leaving his house to go record and uh, had a a copy of their latest album Yoko and his latest album and had him autograph it and it's actually there's actually a photograph it's very spooky of uh, John Lennon signing this with Mark David Chapman standing right behind him and uh, John Lennon left and Mark David Chapman stuck around um, supposedly he says that he was hitting on a girl who was also a Beatles fan waiting for John and, uh, wanted to go home with her and she turned him down. And he says that if, if that wouldn't have happened, then he would have, uh, he would, he would have, he wouldn't have shot him that day. He actually says that even if it was delayed that he had it planned for a while, he's going to shoot him. But, um, what, what ended up happening was, uh, John comes back from the studio at night walks up the steps and Mark David Chapman comes right behind him with a quote unquote, uh, karate stance. 
and shoots him in the back a few times and he falls over into the lobby. His last words are, I'm shot. And, uh, you know, the world kind of stood still after that. So, um, you know, in the spirit of this show not being commercialized uh, and sort of being a FU to uh, copyright general, <laughs> uh, I decided I'm not going to to, to pitch uh, anything at the end of the show and do my plugs and whatnot. Um, said I'm going to end with uh, the story of uh, Howard Cosell of ABC's Monday Night Football. Him and Frank Gifford were in the broadcast room watching a football game between the New England Patriots and the Miami Dolphins. And they were tied, less than a minute left in the fourth quarter. And then in the control room, they got the news about John Lennon dying. And at the time, there was, uh, you know, a lot of pressure to not mention it. You know, they this was like the game-winning shot kind of thing. And uh, they didn't want to say it. They wanted to save it for after the play and stuff. But uh, thank God there was a conscience in that room. And Gifford told Cassell that we can't hang on to the news. And uh, it's it's just kind of beautiful. You can, you know, the one the thing that Cassell also says is that, uh, remember, this is just a football game. Timeout is called. Three seconds remaining. John Smith is on the line, and I don't care what's on the line, Howard, you have got to say what we know in the booth. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. An unspeakable tragedy confirmed to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon, outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City, the most famous, perhaps, of all of the Beatles, shot twice in the back rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, dead on arrival. Hard to go back to the game after that news flash, which in duty, now we have to say. I read the news today, oh boy, about a lucky man who made the grade. And though the news was rather sad, I saw the photograph He blew his mind out in a car He didn't notice that the lights had changed A crowd of people stood and stared They'd seen his face before Nobody was really sure if he was on the house of I saw a film today, oh boy The English army had just won the war A crowd of people turned away But I just had to look Having read the
downstairs and drank a cup And looking up, I noticed I was late Found my coat and grabbed my hat Made the bus in seconds flat Found my way upstairs and had a smoke And somebody spoke and I went into a dream Now they know how many holes it takes to fill the Albert Hall. 